Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hi, this is Dr. John, and I am thrilled to announce that Jory and I are opening up our retreat in beautiful Costa Rica from September 28th of 2024 to October 5th. Everyone wants fulfilling relationships. The hard part is love is not enough. So many factors can get in the way preventing ongoing connection, intimacy, and aligned growth. All healthy relationships start within. But when we have unresolved stuff, it can easily interfere with those we are seeking to be closest with. Whether you're in a long-term committed partnership or are single and are looking for love, this retreat will guide you in the heroic journey of healing yourself so that you can be open and available to cultivate the fulfilling relationships you desire and deserve. To find out more, visit joryrose.com slash retreats. That's J-O-R-E-E-R-O-S-E dot com slash retreats. Hi, this is Dr. John Schinnerer, and I'm here with my partner in life and love, Jory Rose. And we're here to talk today about effective arguing in relationships. You know, this is something that we see so many couples struggle with is in not knowing how to argue effectively, how to understand uh, the emotion of anger and how to actually not have their anger or arguing continue to cause rupture in their relationship. So should I get started with the slides? So we've got a lot of slides to share with you. And in this next hour, we really hope that you be open-minded to understanding arguing in and of itself isn't a bad thing. And that's really what I want to hope you take away from this, because if you can learn to do it in a way that expresses your authenticity, doing your own self-work, taking radical accountability of your emotions, what your needs are, there is a way this can actually strengthen your relationship, which sounds really counterintuitive. And that's really a key point, I think, is to take radical accountability for your own anger, for your own emotions, for your own part in this drama, in this play, in this dynamic. Yeah. All right. So we've got a lot to share with you. If you are someone who likes to take notes, I highly recommend you uh, begin to get a piece of paper, maybe hit pause, because there's going to be a lot of really great content that we know is going to be valuable to in your relationship. So jumping right in, we're going to go over some myths that are common phrases that we hear clients say, and I think we've even gotten stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. And and one of the biggest ones is we think arguing is about being right. And, and I think this stems from our competitive nature, especially as men, where we want to be right, we want to win an argument. And arguing is not about winning or losing. It's about making sure that your partner feels heard. I like Terry Real's statement of, would you rather be right or would you rather be married? Yeah. Do you want to be right or stay connected? Yeah. Right. It's it's gets in our way. So another myth is that healthy couples don't argue. And I actually used to believe this because I was really afraid of anger. I was afraid of arguing. It's not something I grew up with. Um, so I, it really was dysregulating to me. And I used to have this belief, well, if we loved each other, we just wouldn't argue. It would be easy. Well, being easy and not arguing doesn't actually mean you're connected. <laughs> There's a lot of layers underneath that. So this is a myth. People who love each other very deeply still argue, and that's okay. Another myth that we come across is when we finally discover the key to unlock that big argument that we always have, we'll be good. There won't be any more arguing. And arguing is just a part and parcel of being in relationship with someone that you love. 
it's inevitable. The arguing itself is not a problem. How you argue might be, right. and how you repair, how quickly you repair after a disconnection is critical. And we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but I know I, I fell victim to all of these myths really big. I also knew that I thought like, oh, if we just fix this one thing, then everything else will be easy. But you guys, we're going to constantly get triggered. And if you've been listening to any of our videos or our podcast episodes or are part of our masterclass series, you'll know that your triggers aren't always about your partner, right? So it could be from your past, your childhood, previous relationships. As human emotional beings, we are going to have constant new things that are going to potentially upset us. So it's never a one and done. So I'm going to skip to the men are more logical than women and women are more emotional. That's a very, very deep myth that we have in our society, and it's absolutely bullshit. I I really have to put a fine point on that, an exclamation point, because it is absolutely untrue. There's research that shows that male babies, male neonates, are actually more emotional than female. Neonates? Neonates. (laughs) You make it sound like we're Martians. (laughs) Um, But I think we need to get past this myth. Men are emotional. Women are emotional. Men can be logical. Women can be logical. And when we get into a disagreement, odds are we're both getting triggered at some point. Our heart rates are going above 100 beats per minute and we're getting emotionally flooded and we're worthless at that point. Nothing you say at that point in an argument is going to get through to your partner. You're not hearing them. You're only externalizing blame. You're only trying to be heard and not to hear. And that's the point at which we have to learn to take a time out, take 20 minutes out. Think about something else, calm our physiology, and return later to to speak to this issue rationally, coolly. And if you, if I often explain this, but to give a really quick piece of this, we've got our emotional brain in the center part of our of our brain, and we've got our executive functioning in our prefrontal cortex, which is our most evolved part of our brain. There are different parts of the brain. So we all have an emotional brain and we all have a logical brain. The problem is when our emotions take over, it cuts off access to that executive function, to that logic, reason, rationality, communication. So what John just said is really important, which we'll talk about further, is understanding what's going on inside of you so that when that emotional brain is activated, you aren't saying things you don't mean, causing disconnection that might cause bigger repairs and ruptures in the initial argument. Mm -hmm. Finally, this last one, you know, a myth that uncomfortable emotions should be avoided or suppressed not true. All emotions are normal. I don't even call them negative emotion. I call them all natural emotions. So this part might be a really interesting opportunity for you to pause for a moment and think about in your family of origin growing up, what was the culture of emotional expression in your family? Did you only be told you could be around or your parents liked you more when you were happier in a good mood? And therefore you really felt that any negative emotion might be cause for rejection or a dismissal of, you know, opportunity to be part of the family unit if they didn't want you around if you were in a bad mood. So understanding your initial experience and culture around emotions, I think is an important thing to, to take note and, of. And there's another point here that this begins to speak to meta emotion or the feelings that we have about feelings or the belief that we have about feelings or emotions. And this is coming out more and more in recent research as critical in this area of arguing effectively. Because think about what are some of the beliefs that you have about emotion, typically from your family of origin. In other words, things like anger is destructive. Or if this person loves me, they should respond to my passion and argument with 
equal passion. Or I've even heard some clients tell me that love is anger. Mm. So that if you're not getting angry in response to my Mm. anger, you don't love me. Which seems like the complete opposite of that first one. Mm -hmm. Anger is not allowed. So everyone's really going to have a different experience and worldview. Yeah. All right. So one of the things we mentioned at the very beginning is one of the ways to begin to argue more effectively is take radical accountability for yourself and your emotions. So for someone who doesn't know what that means, it's really easy if I'm feeling triggered that I'm going to blame him. It's all his fault that I'm angry. Now, maybe something he did made me angry, but my emotions are my responsibility. So you want to maybe talk more about some of these? Yeah. I mean, I talk a lot about anger and one of the fundamental dynamics of anger is when I'm really angry with her, everything is her fault. And, and the extension of that is it completes me cut. It completely cuts me off from introspection and taking my part from my taking responsibility for my part, which means that I'm never going to grow. I'm never going to change my behaviors or patterns if I'm constantly blaming her for everything that's going wrong. And yet that's a fundamental underlying dynamic of anger. So we got to look at this and say, we're having this argument over and over again. What am I doing? That's not making this better. What do I need to change? How can I look at things differently? How can I work on keeping myself calm, self-soothing? There's a, a number of things we can do, but one of the key factors that we see in couples that are arguing incessantly is they're, they're terrible at externalizing blame and it just sticks us in the mud. It's like, a, if only you didn't do that, I'd be fine. Uh-huh. And I always like to say all relationships is a co-creation. Even if your partner is tactfully like doing a lot of quote negative things, how you're responding, how you're engaging and how you're communicating about it is adding fuel to the fire. So there's always a co-creation occurring. And if we are not looking inward, then we're actually not actually making any change. Right. And one of the other big no-nos is no name calling, no criticism when you're getting hot or actually at any time. But, you know, just to give you a quick example, we, we love the dishwasher example. But what we would like to see is if your loved one hasn't emptied the dishwasher when they said they would, you can speak to that behavior. Mm-hmm. Hey, honey, you said you were going to empty the dishwasher today. It's now 9 p.m. When are you going to get to that? Versus that would be effective. Right. Versus criticism, which is, man, you know, you said you're going to empty the dishwasher. You're so lazy. You never empty the dishwasher when you said you're going to. That's a criticism. When I'm speaking to the whole of the person, you're lazy. Mm-hmm. That's a criticism and it's it's a cognitive error. And it's partly when you're starting to attack character versus the behavior right in front of you. So this is a really big one. And I see this a lot with the couples I work with is it goes to character attacks, partly because, and we'll talk about this further too, the resentments build and build and build. So now they're creating a story in their head, then they're actually believing. So it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. at some point in these dynamics also, because we're not repairing the small paper cuts from previous. So now we really are full on kitchen sinking. And by the way, when you start to criticize someone like that, the odds are they're not going to do what you want them to do in the first place because they're going to dig their heels in and be resistant to that criticism. Yeah. It's actually going to continue the behavior you don't want them to keep doing, which is the irony in understanding how to be more effective in this. So to quickly go through these, some of these, if you're familiar with John and Julie Gottman's work, some of these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which we do talk about later on, but defensiveness, this is one thing that John and I've really worked hard at doing when we are disconnected or in an argument is to not be defensive when the other person's expressing themselves. And defensiveness is anytime I'm defending 
what I did or what I said by explaining myself is defensiveness. So that could be me in anger doing that, but it could also be me calmly doing that. Right. And the goal in any of these arguments is really listening to your partner's emotion underlying their words first and foremost. So validate what they're feeling. And then perhaps later you can go back and explain, hey, this is what I was thinking. I didn't really mean to hurt your feelings. Right. There's so much more we can say about this, but I'll keep moving on. Stonewalling is when the other person just shuts down and it's like literally like you're talking to a wall. That's really harmful. Argument. Oh, yeah, it was horrible. And it's kind of leads into avoidant behaviors. And the more accountability he took for his own experience and his own co-creation of the dynamic, that stonewalling really went away. So thank you for that because mm-hmm. that has really shifted. Another one is contempt. And contempt is when we look at ourselves as superior in some way to our partner. And contempt can often show up as sarcasm, put downs, eye rolls, Mm -hmm. uh, sighing. And it's a very, very damaging emotion to show up in relationship. Uh, So we talked to mention a minute ago about incomplete arguments from the past. And so if we, again, start kitchen sinking and now we're not just bringing up the dishwasher, we're talking about everything this person has ever done to hurt you. Not going to be effective. And emotional flooding is what I mentioned earlier, when our heart rate goes above 100 beats per minute, we're then thinking and responding from our emotional mind, not our rational mind. And no good is going to come of that. So we got to calm down first before we can proceed with effective arguing. So, you know, in all this work that John and I are doing, we are really looking at this interplay of your own self-work, of what's going on inside of you, accumulation of your past, of how it's affected your present, your previous relationships, your childhood, your emotional state, how you regulate, as well as the relational work, doing the work with your partner. And, you know, looking at this unresolved emotional issues from our past relationships, that's a part of the self-work. But if you don't look at that, it's going to be projected onto your current relationship. And this was something that it took us years to actually understand. Mm -hmm. And once we did, it was extremely helpful because we could recognize, oh, wait a second, like I'm getting triggered from something from my ex or from my mother. It's coming out in reaction to you, but it's actually not about you. But that's my own work and my responsibility to be curious about, to begin to heal so that I can be fully present. And typically we have no awareness that we're even doing this. Yeah, It's so convincing that I'm angry at her. And if she would just stop being a fill in the blank, I wouldn't be so angry. It's it's an illusion most of the time. So we got to get past that illusion. So the do your own damn work, this is the self part of that interplay. If you're only relying on your partner to change, you're going to stay disconnected. All right. So we we talked about the myths. We've talked about some of the things that we see common happening. Now, let's go to some solutions. Yeah. And and one of the things that's come out of research recently with the Gottmans is the first three minutes of an argument are incredibly powerful and important because not only they determine how the argument is likely to go, but they also show how your relationship is likely to go six years later. And they can tell with 90% accuracy watching the first three minutes of your argument, whether or not you're going to be together in six years. Yeah, that's wild to me. Mm -hmm. And the the four horsemen, as we mentioned in the previous few minutes, was contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Again, they have accuracy. And when they see that in couples, the prediction of divorce. And so one of the ways that we can begin to shift the way that we're talking with our partners during an argument is how we're approaching. So I'm going to give a couple of examples because 
sometimes when you're arguing, things might come, you know, right in the hot minute and you're just going to blurt out how you're feeling. Other times there's an argument can stem from something you actually have on your mind that you want to be talking about, that you want to repair, share how I'm feeling. So especially for those moments in which you have something important you're wanting to share, it's really, really valuable if you create the space for an intentional conversation with your partner, knowing you have something you want to talk about. If I had been something, had something on my mind all day and John walks in and I just blurted out, he's going to have no awareness what's coming. He's going to have no ability to prepare or to even get his mind and body in the state for a potentially difficult conversation. This often startup with me saying, Hey, John, there's something I'd love to share with you. I have something that's on my mind. Can you let me know when is a good time we can talk? He can have the freedom to say, oh, I'm good right now. But if he senses this might be a difficult conversation, he can come back and say, hey, love, you know, give me a few minutes. So that way he can mentally, emotionally prepare to be present, to practice non-defensiveness right off the bat, to regulate breathing. And then think about how often we do this. We'll catch our partner unawares without any awareness on our own part, where is our partner during the day? Like, did they just have a fight with their mom or dad? Did they have a really lousy day at work? Are they stressed about other things? Did they just get stuck in traffic? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that can go into taking an argument off rail or any conversation off rail. So you want to make sure that your your partner's in a really good place emotionally to hear you. You want to give yourself the best chance of success. I I kind of call this the reciprocity of needs. If I can communicate to John in a way he can hear me, then I will have a much better chance of getting my needs met back in return. If it's all about me all the time, I likely won't get my need met back in return regarding being heard, being validated, looking for resolution, solution, compassion, whatever it might be. That's a great segue also into this idea of needs. And and this one, you know, it's kind of like, rewarding your kids for good behavior, catching them being good. You want to catch your partner being good. But in this case, it's bring up what you do need rather than what you don't need. And so often we're trained to focus on the negative. I need you to stop doing this. I need you to keep, like, don't do that. But what is it you need? So, hey, honey, give an example. I'm, yeah. I'm feeling jealous or insecure in our relationship right now. I need some reassurance. Now you do it. I think it would be, you know, one of the ones that I've seen, hey, Lev, I'm really feeling disconnected. We haven't had much time together. What I'm really needing right now is some more time with you, mm-hmm. you know, versus you're. Ne- this isn't our experience, yeah. but, you know, I hear a lot of couples saying you're never home. You're too busy at work. You're out with your buddies. You're at golf all day. That's just more complaints, which guess what? If they're getting, if you're getting mad at your partner, the last thing they want to do is stay home. So we have <laughs> it's going to push them away. So. We have to have the awareness to to be aware, that's redundant, of our own needs and then have the courage to speak up for them, to be assertive about them. And we've learned over time, if we can state, hey, I'm feeling really vulnerable sharing this, even that is a form of a softened startup because I'm owning my experience. It's a way of letting him know where I'm at. It's also helpful if, you know, in a kind of a reverse way, but I think this is effective too, to prevent arguments you know, John's gotten really good at being able to say to me early, you know, at some point on the day, if he's feeling off or in a down mood or overtired, he'll let me know where he's at emotionally, mentally, physically. And that's really good information for me to have because if there was something on my mind that I wanted to bring up, I would wait until he was in a better emotional state or have been more rested. Again, 
support the behaviors you wish to continue to see, which is you want your partner to be able to receive you when you have something to say. Yeah, yeah, we got to move on. We we got so much more to to share. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I I love this idea from Terry Real, the paper cuts of doom, or you know, that most relationships don't end via a huge transgression like an affair. Most relationships end via death by a thousand paper cuts, where those paper cuts are tiny little hurts and annoyances and being ignored. It's the small little dismissals. And I've had so much experience this where the smallest little slight feels so painful. It could be a dismissal of my emotion, a dismissal of what I'm interested in. This is not really from John. He's actually really good at these things, but I've had the experience in understanding these little paper cuts, the small little things that in the moment you're like, why should that bother me? That wasn't really a big deal. But when they accumulate, it becomes a really big deal because now you don't feel seen, you don't feel heard, you don't feel validated, you don't feel safe to express yourself, which creates a problem. And and just quickly to the brain science of this, they've done brain scan studies at UCLA where they've looked at how does being excluded in a relationship make us feel? And what they found is it activates an area in the brain that is exactly the same area where physical pain Mm -hmm. registers. It's the insula. And so what they've concluded from that is being excluded actually hits the same area in the brain and delivers the same kind of pain as physical pain, which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. Because when we're living in tribes, if we were excluded from the tribe, it literally could mean life or death. So our emotional mind is still responding in the same way. So all this is to understand if, if it's small, Pay attention to it. You don't have to wait for big things to bring it up. But again, if you have a fear of emotion, of difficult emotion, hard conversations, not knowing how to communicate about it, I understand it's going to make it hard. And and let's let's share with you kind of how small these paper cuts are, because I think this is a really illuminating example. And this is a tool from the Gottmans about bids for attention. And we make bids for attention all the time. Hey, honey, did I tell you about or, oh, come look at this. Or, or can I read you or something? What are you doing? Are you That's wrong that in, we do all the yeah, time. You just walk in to the house. Hey, honey, I'm home. And how you respond to that bid for attention is incredibly important for the health of your relationship. So there's three ways to respond to them: positive, neutral, negative. And actually, the most damaging part to the relationship is the neutral response. No. When you feel, you know, when you get ignored. That's actually worse than someone snapping at you. I mean, think about it like in the morning. So John likes to read the news in the morning on his phone. And if I'm making breakfast or we're drinking coffee, and if I were to say something to him and he didn't even look up from his phone, that would feel so dismissing. But if I were to try to talk to him, and even if you were to say, can't you see I'm reading? That would be a negative response, still better than nothing. Mm-hmm. At least I was acknowledged. And a positive response is when I put down the phone and I look up and I say, no, baby, you didn't tell me what were you talking about? It would still be a positive response to be able to say, hey, you know what? Can you tell me in just a minute? I want to finish this article. It doesn't mean you got to drop everything. It just means you're showing and expressing interest in your partner. You're caring about what they're wanting to share, their presence. And that positive bid for attention is going to be positive drops in the bucket when the inevitable ones fall, which we'll talk about later. And what they find is that couples who are doing well, couples that are thriving and happy six years later, respond positively to each other's bids for attention 86% of the time. And couples headed for breakup, it's only 33% of the time. Now, here's the thing I love about this idea. It doesn't matter where you are right now. What matters is you become aware of this concept 
and strive to get better. And the way that this it, it becomes part of arguing, because I want to make sure we're continuing to tie this back up with arguing effectively. If you are giving positive bids for attention, even during arguments, that's okay. Because I, I think we have this notion that we can't act positively toward our partner when we're angry. It's all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And I see this a lot with couples. Why would I be nice if I'm angry? Why would I acknowledge what you're saying? Because that's a positive bid for attention is a practice in non-defensive listening in and of itself. So there's so, there, there's so much to share on this. Okay. And so here's some broader rules, rules from the 30,000 foot view and kind of what are your beliefs about emotion in general and conflict in general? So really important to consider that anger is not bad in and of itself. Anger is a healthy human emotion. It serves to signal when someone has crossed a boundary or someone is mistreating you. It serves to alert us when something has gone wrong and you need to assert yourself and speak up. And oftentimes there's some other emotion underlying the anger. So part of that self-work is getting really curious what's causing my anger right now. I know when John and I used to get disconnected more of the time, some of the emotions that you were feeling underneath anger wasn't exactly anger. No, Might it have could been. have been sadness. It could have been embarrassment. It could have been shame. Right. Guilt. So having that knowledge of what's actually going on helps you understand your anger, more of that self-work. But the relational part is anger in and of itself isn't a problem. It's what am I doing with it? So again, conflict in and of itself isn't destructive. Conflict is healthy conversation. We are entitled to two different points of view. We are two different human beings who are going to experience different emotions. We're going to have different values that are driving our behavior. And that's really important to understand. So moving on, 68% of the conflicts that we have in relationship are perpetual, ongoing, or unresolvable. So think about that for a second. Two-thirds of what we argue about cannot be solved. They're due to personality differences. They're due to differences in the way we perceive the world. But if that's true, then we really have to work on radically accepting the differences between us and our partner yeah. and learn how to fight effectively and fair, or we can just go find another partner. The problem with that is you're still going to have two thirds of the problems that are unresolved. So, so part of that, just to add to that is, can we agree to disagree? Mm -hmm. Can we let it be okay that we're never going to see eye to eye on this and not make this a personal attack on character or values or how we grew up? So as we said earlier, it's not about always being right. It's about staying connected, which really goes to how are we hearing our partners? What is the emotion underneath their behaviors, their action, which again, it all comes back to awareness, awareness of what's going on with you. The more you get to know your partner, awareness of what they're experiencing. John and I know each other so well that we can truly be able to see what's underneath our emotional expression, our actions, but it's also taken us years to hone that, to, to hone that but also because we had a lot of curiosity about this. So we've mentioned some of these um, a little bit earlier, but going into you know, when you're going to argue, let's have some agreement on some fair rules because arguing can be a really effective form of hearing each other, getting out frustration. If we don't get it out, it's going to build and it's going to explode later on. So if we can find value in these difficult conversations, let it be okay to be uncomfortable with some rules. No name calling, no criticism. The kitchen sinking is that accumulation of all the past shit being thrown in this argument right now. So really try to stay present, 
stick with the issue at hand, focus on the behavior, not the character of the person. Yeah, I think one issue at a time is a cardinal rule, because what happens when we get angry is we start going back to the past and then pulling in all the stuff that we've been angry at and never really resolved. And, and then we go to that always, never. And it's it's you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to resolve any of the issues that are resolvable if you start kitchen sinking. So I want to comment on this on this next little bullet point here, because I've been studying the Gottmans for over 25 years. And I am humbled to say I have been sharing content of their research that I actually have gotten wrong. I don't know if you can share it the right way for so many years. Is this okay? Good. This has changed because this is really, really important. And their research for years has said that we need to have a ratio of positive to negative exchange or emotions in your partnership five to one. So five positives for every one negative. As more you can put into that positive emotional bucket, when there's the inevitable withdrawal, you're going to have enough left over. So the way that you do build up that positive emotional bucket is through gratitude, appreciation, expressing, you know, what be more the behaviors you wish to see versus focusing on the negative. Turns out in current research on their new book, Mm -hmm. Fight Right, it's actually, you want to have five to one positive to negatives during conflict. They want, it, they want it to be 20 to one every day. Now, I, I don't know about you, the clients that you see, the couples that we work with, people aren't even hitting the five to one on a good yeah. day, let alone during conflict. So let this be really interesting insight into how much am I dwelling and focusing on the negative, which by the way, understand our brains are designed to focus on the negative. So we're fighting an uphill battle from our evolutionary design anyways. So it's going to take conscious effort and attention and energy to look for the good and then share the good. And again, just like the bids for attention idea, it doesn't matter where you are on this positive to negative ratio. What matters is that you become aware of this ratio and seek to get better at it. Yeah. And especially for men, I talk to a lot of men who really struggle with, you know, sharing positive information, gratitude, appreciation, humor. Um, but we've got to work to kind of tap into that inner coach or inner cheerleader in us and be more comfortable sharing positive emotion Mm -hmm. because a lot of us, it's been socialized out of, and that's really a problem for relationship. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, kind of moving on here, John has really helped me get much better at. I used to take myself way too seriously. So then, especially during conflict, I couldn't even find the lightheartedness or the humor. And humor, even as research shows, is actually an effective antidote in the middle of an argument. Couples who can laugh at like, here we go again. Oh my God, I can't believe we're here. Like seriously, if you can say that with some humor, it can diffuse some of that negative experience, negative emotion, helping you get back on track to being able to hear each other, remember, oh, we're just human. Like that's one of the things we say, damn, here we go being human again even a bad joke is a repair attempt you're good at that oh i'm great at (laughs) the bad jokes so you know when you recognize that the conversation has gone awry and and we're going to talk about in a moment part of the ways this can really keep you stuck because we used to get stuck in this a lot but when you recognize i'm no longer effective right now I actually need to take a break. Mm. Now, I used to see that as abandonment in the middle of conflict, especially where all I was seeking was connection and close proximity. But John actually knew himself really well of when he was getting overwhelmed, when he didn't want to say something he didn't mean. So the Gottman's research says, great, 
But you got it. The key for this, if you're going to take a break in conflict, is you got to tell your partner when you're going to be back. A minimum amount of time to really help reset the brain is about 20 minutes. Maximum is 24 hours. Do not take longer, but also let them know, hey, hon, I'm going to be back. And John actually wasn't great at this at times as he needed space, but he gave me no indication of when he would return. And sometimes it would last over a day at the worst points of our conflict, which was so dysregulating. And it took time to build trust back up that, oh, he's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. He just needs space to calm himself down. So I I know I keep reiterating this, but this is the part of the self-awareness to do your own work, to understand how do I show up in conflict? And I think this leads right into our next concept is understanding what can often happen is this anxious avoidant trap. And this is based on different attachment styles. So there's three main ones, secure, anxious, avoidant. There's a mix of anxious and avoidant. But bottom line, when we feel safe with our primary person, we feel safe to not just explore and go be ourselves because we know they're going to always be when we get back. So it makes conflict much safer to express knowing I'm not going to be abandoned or rejected for expressing this. And so briefly, let us go through this anxious avoidant trap as we experienced it, because I think it's really illuminating. And, what and a ha- lot of couples resonate with this. Oh, it's it's by far the most prevalent dynamic. And so during conflict, during disagreements, I was the avoidant partner and I would start to get flooded after 15, 20 minutes. And then I would shut down and it looked like, and it was stonewalling, but from my internal perspective, I'm thinking, I don't want to say anything in anger. I don't want to say anything that's going to hurt her. And the best I can do is just shut myself down and then try and get, try and get a timeout so I can go down, go away and calm myself down. But to her. It was pure abandonment. And the further he kind of took space, the more I would chase him. Because what we were really both trying to do was seek regulation, right? Be able to feel calm and clear and safe in our own bodies. Can I jump in there? Because I think it's an important point. I was trying to seek regulation alone as an individual. She was trying to seek regulation together as a couple. Through through connection. And I didn't know how to self-regulate in those moments because what felt safe to me was to be with him. Even if we were disconnected, that felt better. And the more I tried for that, ironically, the more it pushed him away. So this is why it's a trap because the anxious partner is seeking regulation through connection and the avoidant partner is seeking regulation through isolation or being solitary. And so what was my work in that dynamic? My work was communicating that I'm getting flooded, ask for a timeout, saying to her, hey, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be back in 20 minutes. And then I also had to do some interesting work on my own regarding shame that I would feel because I really didn't want to disappoint or hurt her. And when I did, it would bring me to this point where just for a few seconds, I would hear thoughts in my head like, oh, I'm no good in this relationship. Uh, I guess she'd be better off by herself. And it took me a while to go back and think, oh, my God, that's shame. Mm-hmm. Shame being the belief that we are unworthy of love, connection, or belonging. Mm-hmm. And my work in my anxious attachment style in those moments was to recognize I need to learn how to self-regulate. I can't rely on someone else to make me feel safe and secure. I needed to understand where my insecurity was coming from. The story I was telling myself was he was leaving and not coming back, which wasn't true, but I couldn't see that based on my own stuff. So it was a deep practice for me to say, okay, he's not available to help regulate me right now, which is another way of saying calming me down. This is my work. And I don't like it. It was hard. It sucked. It felt lonely. It was scary. 
And that was more indication. I had more work to do around that. So I've gotten much better at feeling safe and secure, partly because of the work that we have done during conflict Mm -hmm. to understand what's going on so that he doesn't abandon me and I'm not chasing him. Both is violating our needs. But when we can be curious and compassionate to what's the need underneath this behavior, then we have the freedom to feel safe in conflict because we're practicing that non-defensive listening, all of those skills to allow ourselves to express each other, which is so much easier said than done. I mean, it, this is hard work, you guys. And we struggled in this for quite some time. Well, And it's incredibly rewarding. And that's what I was going to say is now I feel really safe saying something because I know We've got the baseline of the tools and the safety to know how to get through it. All right. So more effective communication skills. One of the great tools with communication is nonviolent communication, in addition to curiosity and compassion. And and I think one of the things we're always trying to do in relationship or many of the couples that we see, we're trying to be heard. And we're Mm -hmm. so worried about, I'm so worried about me getting my message out, how I feel out and you hearing me. Mm -hmm. Far better to come at it with curiosity with regards to, I wonder what Jory's feeling right now. Mm-hmm. What's she trying to tell me? What's and coming up What's coming up underneath this action too? Right. What's the emotions underneath her words? And how can I phrase what I'm thinking and feeling as gently as possible so that she has the best chance of hearing me? So using a lot of I statements, I feel not using criticism, not using put downs, trying to monitor and regulate my own anger and tone of voice and body language. Yeah. And nonviolent communication is a four-step process of observing the behaviors that are happening by with an I statement. I love starting off by I'm noticing. The second step is to name how whatever it is you're noticing, how it makes you feel. So you're owning your experience. Then you're able to say, if I'm feeling angry, what do I need to alleviate that emotion? I need to have a healthy conversation. I need to be heard. And the last one is a request. So right now, can you please fill in the blank? People misunderstand that nonviolent communication isn't saying, I'm noticing you're being an asshole. I'm noticing you're doing this. I'm noticing. So if you're putting a you statement with an I statement in front of it, that's still not an I statement. It's not it's still externalizing blame under the guise of an I statement, and it's actually not going to be effective. Um, one of our favorite scripts to be able to look at ways to communicate is through the account on Instagram, the secure attachment. There's a so much valuable information, and she'll give a little script of when blank happens, I'm feeling this, what I need is this. Can you please do this? And there's like mad, it's like mad libs mm-hmm. for arguments. And if you can shift the way you communicate. It's an absolute game changer and it takes practice, but it's like like learning a new language and it's worthwhile to learn. And the extension of that is you want to validate the behaviors you want to see more of. So we're quite good at expressing appreciation for how we communicate about something like, you know, hey, honey, I really appreciate how you brought up the fact that you were annoyed when I came home late the other day. Right. I mean, those kind of things, because you want to reward the behaviors you want to see. And we're not very good at doing this. So it takes practice and awareness. The non-defensive listening piece, I don't think we've named this exact part just yet. We think when someone expresses themselves that the other person has to do something about it. I want to invite you to consider what would it look like if you actually just gave themselves, gave your partner them, I can't even talk. What would happen if you just gave your partner an ability to express themselves without needing 
any next piece. So what this looks like in practice, John's gotten quite good at this, which is a huge huge departure from that stonewalling and avoidant behaviors. If I express something that I'm angry about, he will simply say, thank you for sharing your anger with me. I can see that this really makes you mad. Now that's not the end of the story, but in the moment, that point of connection of feeling seen, heard, and validated, not getting any defensive response, not getting reactions, gives us the ability to then talk about it. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like coming up for air after you've been held underwater for several minutes. And it makes me feel like, oh, I can express myself and I'm not going to get punished for it, quote unquote, punished. Yeah, you have an exhalation yeah. in your body. It's like, wow. And, feels good. and now we can give each other space to feel what they're feeling versus denying someone the reality of what they're feeling or telling them that what they're feeling is wrong. Mm-hmm. So the last piece of, of not the last, this is so much, but this is the last we want to share on this part of it is when you have a disagreement, you might need to revisit it a handful of times. And John actually used to get pretty frustrated with me because I liked to visit things with somewhat reg- regularity with some and, frequency. And what I like to say is if I'm still not feeling resolved or complete in this, then we are not. But if I were to bring something up again, after we talked about it, or maybe a day or a week later and said, you know, Hey, love, I'm really wanting to talk about this again. At first, his reaction would be like, seriously, like I thought we were done. <laughs> yeah. And so I've, I've had to learn from Jory about this, the importance of doing this. And now I'm a strong believer that the more we can go back and revisit some of these disagreements or ruptures or disconnections, the greater objectivity we get, the more curiosity we have, the more distance we have from it. So we can actually look at it with clearer eyes and determine what's this really about? Why did I get triggered right here? Was that really about you? Was it really about how you communicated? Was it really about my stuff? Was it about past relationship? Was it about something that happened in my childhood? And sometimes this stuff takes some real thinking and digging to uncover what's really going on. But the more you practice it, the more you do it, you create this positive upward spiral of going back over these past arguments Mm -hmm. and you gain greater and greater control and ability to manage them and confidence that you can deal with it and confidence that you're actually changing Mm -hmm. these dynamics. And I used to always say, look, I don't care if we argue, I want to learn from it. I want to grow from it. The more we can have these conversations with curiosity without re-triggering because there's often a fear of if I bring it up again, I'm going to re-trigger the situation. If I bring it up again, I don't want to rock the boat. We're in a good place right now. So part of it is the intention for which you're bringing it back up. It's so that you don't get stuck in the same patterns because I see couples getting stuck in the exact same argument all the time, which means They're not learning from what's going on inside of them, what's the relational dynamic, and most importantly, how to effectively repair it. Is the definition of insanity. Correct. The same thing over and over again. Right. Expecting a different outcome. So, you know, if you continue to do work with us, this is ongoing. But if you are finding yourself getting stuck in patterns that we all just named and the arguments aren't getting resolved, some of the antidotes to that is your self work of a mindfulness practice to really pause, take a deep breath get connected to what am I experiencing right now? What are my thoughts? What are my emotions? What are my sensations in my body? The more I can know myself, the more I'm able to bring that self-knowledge into my relational dynamic in a more effective relational way. And one of the things I love about this very simple exercise of stopping, pausing, doing a body scan, taking a breath three times a day, and simply asking yourself, what am I feeling right now? Is it's, it's the 
easiest, most powerful way I know of to build meta-awareness or Mm self-awareness, to build psychological distance from your thought stream so that you can look at it more objectively. And and what they found in research is that the answer to this question doesn't even matter. Mm. You don't need to answer it at all. I mean, you can, that's great. But the practice of stopping, pausing, and asking yourself, what am I feeling right now, is building that self-awareness. And to to reinstate, because I know I keep saying it, if you don't have the self-awareness in your relational dynamic, you're going to only ever get stuck in externalization of blame and pointing fingers. And it's never going to resolve in a way that's going to help you be more connected ever. So this is actually the most critical piece of all of this arguing effectively is understanding yourself, what you're feeling and digging deeper of where is this coming from? What's my triggers? And then sharing your triggers. I want to say this actually, because we didn't mention this, sharing your triggers with your partner. When I start work with new clients, new couples, one of the first questions I always ask is, do you know your partner's deepest insecurities, sensitivities, or wounded places? I would say it's about 50-50 that they actually have that knowledge of their partner. The reason that's important is if you don't know what your partner's deepest insecurity or wounded place is, you're likely going to activate it in an argument and it's going to be hugely disconnecting. When you have that awareness of your partner, you can be mindful even when you're angry to not say the thing that's going to hit them where it hurts the most because those are the ones that are really hard to repair from. And as we've talked about in previous videos and our teachings, repair attempts are hard. You've got to keep repairing until you are feeling resolved and connected. But if you're constantly in arguments, hitting below the belt and saying things that you know are going to hurt, that knowledge is one of the things that can help you. Mm-hmm. And, and the final piece here is taking turns and practicing expressing gratitude and appreciation for one another. And it, it's really a game of what what are the variety of things I can be grateful to that my partner does and how small, how granular can I get? And so that also creates this greater awareness of the relational dynamic, mm-hmm. but it's beginning to, to train your mind to focus on what's good, what's going well, what's the positive in this relationship, instead of just allowing our mind's negativity bias to run away with us without training and without awareness. People get stuck on, why should I thank my partner for something that is their job? Why should I thank my partner for what they're supposed to be doing? There should be nothing you're not appreciating about in your partner. Like I know someone who once um, their husband had taken their kid to the dentist and she, because of that, she was able to go to the gym in the morning. And I said, well, did you thank him for doing that? She's like, well, why? It was his job. Well, A, you can still appreciate what's his job. B, it allowed you to go to the gym. C, it's great co-parenting. Like I could go on and on there. Well, I think the biggest reason to me is that it puts drops of positive emotion into that bucket. For 20, not five. (laughs) And we need that because there's inevitably going to be times when we get disconnected and when we struggle and when life gets hard. So the more that you've got a built up of reserves in that positive emotional bucket, the better your relationship's going to do. And it could be about their behaviors, their character, their values. I mean, we just, you know, we just finished watching a movie and I just appreciated John for the kind of movies we get to watch together. That means a lot to me, right? Even his energy during the movie or the comments, like I can get really granular with my appreciation with you because it actually means that much to me. So if you think it, share it. If you feel it, let the other one know. No one's ever going to tire of hearing that they're appreciated. Mm. Ever. 
So I I hope that you saw there is so much in this, and this is all foundational in the work that we do in our relationship coaching, because bottom line, love isn't enough. And you can love someone and still argue and not have it cause really deep paper cuts in your relationship. You can learn from them. You can heal from them. It can make you stronger. You can have that greater self-awareness, which is actually going to benefit everyone in your life, not Mm -hmm. just your primary partner. And these are skills that are learnable. As John likes to always point out the research, he's so good at remembering that. See, look at that little compliment. I just appreciate him in the middle of that there. This matters. This is really important stuff. Love isn't enough. You can still argue. You can fight. The key is in how we're doing it, how we're repairing, and what we're learning in the process. Well, and our firm belief is that everyone deserves and is entitled to happiness. But we have such a long way to go in getting there. And one of the foundational issues in creating a happy, thriving life is having a happy, thriving relationship with your partner. And we have not been taught how to do that. We've got to be curious. We've got to learn the tools to get better at it. And it's possible. It's it's 100% possible. If you want it, it can happen. It's not what you wish for. It's what you work for. And one of the things we hear a lot of, well, I wasn't role modeled this. Okay. None of us were. Great. So whatever you didn't see, you can still have it. If you didn't like it, what you did see, let that be information of what you actually want to create. So if this is inspiring to you, there's a lot of ways to get more of this work with John and I. We've got our year-long masterclass series. We do couples coaching. We do relationship retreats. So the link, you know, you can be able to find all of our information of how to actually not know this stuff cognitively, but be guided and coached into putting it into practice. Yeah. And that link is the ultimate relationship.com. You can also look at joryrose.com or the evolved caveman.com. I think we actually just changed our ultimate relationship. Oh, do we love isn't enough.com? Yeah. So we're in the midst of changing that over. So depending on when you hear it, it's going to be love isn't enough.net. Oh, thank you. Love isn't enough.net. I'm just getting that. We're, we're, we're just changing our language over. Um, Anyhow, thanks you guys so much for tuning in. We are so grateful that we get to do this work together because having been in our professional careers for over 20 and 30 years, being in relationship for over eight years, we find we're in a really unique spot of being two mental health professionals in relationship that included a breakup after an engagement. Like we have been practicing all these tools. So professional, you know, tools aside from a relational human standpoint, this stuff actually works. And we've never been more connected, been more happy, more secure in our relationship. And if we can do that, anyone can. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your time, attention, and curiosity. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 